0: last episode, we learned about Nanak's grand epiphany that gave him a sense of mission. The story of the Sikhs continues as we join Guru Nanak and his faithful companion Mardana on their wanderings, which will last for decades and bring them to wondrous places, as he develops bold new ideas and creates the institutions, which will ensure their propagation and survival.
1: A fabulous feast has been laid out. Mouth-watering delicacies of every kind imaginable. Rich curries, mounds of fragrant rice colored with saffron and garnished with cashews, almonds, and raisins. Trays heaped with succulent sweetmeats. It is a formal feast, a Brahmabhoj, and it has been arranged by Malik Pago, the richest man in the town of Sayyadpur. The large hall, festooned with streamers and decorated with flowers, has been separated into four sections, the fourth one set apart from the other three by a great distance. In each section sit men in rows, banana leaves spread before them on which attendants heap endless mounds of food. The guests lick their fingers and smack their lips as they sample each new delicacy. Amid the feasting and revelry sits Malik Pago, resplendent in robes of silk with a regal turban on his head. His brow, though, is furrowed and there's a frown on his face. He has organized the ritual feeding of Brahmins, the priests, who sit at the top of the hierarchy of castes. It is an important occasion, for it will rid him of the bad karma that he has accrued in the past and might accrue in the future. It will grant all his ancestors absolution for their sins, and will be their salvation. Befitting his status as a wealthy man, he has invited all the forecast to the feast and has spared no expense. A feast like this one, Sayyadpur has never seen before. This should be a day of joy and triumph, but Malik Bhago's mind is not at peace. For while the entire town has turned out to salute him, and celebrate his power and wealth, there is one who has dared to defy him, quietly but effectively, by simply not showing up. Malikpago had decided to arrange a feast, the likes of which had never been seen in Sayadpur before. A Brahmapoge required that only Brahmins be fed. But Malik Bago had magnanimously decided to invite all the four castes and had sent his family priest, of course a Brahmin, to invite everyone. The Brahmin had made his way to a humble hut on the outskirts of Sayyidpur the home of a poor carpenter named Lalo. For, he had heard, a holy man, a fakir or ascetic named Nanak, was living in Lalo's home. Nanak's presence in Lalo's home had set tongues wagging, for it was rumoured that he was the son of a high-caste Kshatriya. It was shocking and unseemly for him to be living in the hut of a carpenter, a low-caste Shudra. The Brahmin haughtily informed Nanak of Maligpago's upcoming feast and bid him to attend as all the four castes had been invited. Nanak refused, saying that as a fakir, he didn't belong to any of the castes. The Brahmin scolded Nanak, warning him that his strange ways had already given him an unsavory reputation and told him that he would incur Malik Bhago's wrath if he didn't attend. When Nanak refused, the Brahmin scurried to Malik Bhago and complained of his intransigence. After the feast, the chagrined Malikpago sent the Brahmin back to fetch the impudent holy man, but Nanak looked quizzically at him and refused to accompany him. What could Malikpago possibly want from me, O Brahmin? The Brahmin hurried back to his master again in great indignation, complaining about the stubborn Nanak. He refuses your summons, lord! And such shameless behaviour! The son of a Kshatriya consorting with the lowly Shudra! Livid with anger, Malikpago sent his servants to drag the defiant Nanak to his presence. Upon hearing of Malikpago's anger, Nanak agreed to accompany them to his house, and the little procession set out for the rich man's mansion with Lalo. Fearful for Nanak's safety, following close behind. How dare you turn down my invitation to the feast? Malik Pago thundered, a hush settling in on the room as he sat in his throne like chair, surrounded by his followers and household priests. Nanak, who stood humbly before him, replied, that he was a fakir, and he had no use for rich food or delicacies. His answer, rather than placating Malik Pago, only served to anger him even further. You call yourself a fakir, refuse my food, and dare to break bread with a lowly carpenter? Upon which Nanak softly asked, Do you have any food to offer me now? Slightly mollified, Malik Pago sent the Brahmins to his kitchen to bring some food for Nanak. Nanak turned to Lalo, who stood close by, his hands clasped before him and his head bowed humbly and asked him to fetch some food as well. The Brahmins returned from the kitchen bearing a hot and aromatic fried delicacy known as a luchi kachori. In a few moments, Lalo returned with a dry roti, coarse bread made of kodri or millet, a humble staple of the poor. Nanak calmly looked at Malik Pago as he grasped the fried delicacy in his left hand and the coarse millet bread in his right hand, and then he squeezed. The assembly gasped in wonderment. Drops of blood dripped from Nanak's left hand. The rough millet bread yielded drops of milk. This is a story that every Sikh child hears growing up. For generations, young Sikh children have heard many such stories about Nanak at their grandparents' knees. Some are wondrous tales of miracles that Nanak wrought, others are thinly disguised appropriations from Hindu mythology, and some are based on historical fact, documented and propagated through the generations. Nanak was above all else a very rational and practical man who spent his whole life debunking ritualism and pouring scorn on superstition, It is ironic that the legacy of a man who mercilessly exposed tricksters claiming miraculous spiritual powers now swirls with fantastic tales. Yet, many of these stories are hugely important because in a simple yet colourful manner, they shed light on the ethos of the creed that Nanak was clearly building brick by brick throughout his life. Many of these stories come from collections of texts called Janamsakhis, which can be loosely translated to birth chronicles. Several of these texts have been preserved, some dating from the late 1500s and other well into the 1800s. Many of them are contradictory, and in some of them, agendas aligned with the divisions that inevitably appeared as the faith progressed, are apparent. Many devout Sikhs treat the Saki accounts with reverence and bristle at the suggestion that some of the stories might be apocryphal. Scholars of various stripes have published volumes of research arguing about their authenticity or lack thereof. As a practicing Sikh, particularly as a young man learning about his faith, and then as a teacher of Sikh history, I have struggled with my approach to these stories. I have come to accept them as parables, because without doubt, many of them illuminate important truths and principles. Nanak was a revolutionary. Even before he had his great epiphany, which gave him a sense of mission, He had pondered the human condition deeply. From his earliest years, he had been a keen observer of society and an uncompromising critic of practices that he saw as being unfair. We have already delved into his brilliant assault on caste-based discrimination. It was a time of great social inequality, where a feudal system added to the misery of the poor and those who belonged to low castes. Historian D. N. Jha, in a paper titled Early Indian Feudal Formation, could have been describing the conditions of common peasants during the time of Nanak, suffering under the thumb of oppressive landlords like Malik Pago. In backward areas, Where there was dearth of labor, peasants were required to perform free labor for the landlord. In thickly populated areas, the practice of sub infudation implying the right to eject cultivators, was well established, which led not only to an oppressive collection of rent, but also to reducing the permanent tenants to the position of tenants at will. The parable of Bailalo and Malik Bago is a testament to one of the most important aspects of Nanak's worldview, an unequivocal commitment to social justice. Nanak's tender heart chafed at the rampant exploitation that he saw around him. Fighting the insidiousness of economic oppression became a cornerstone of his new faith. The rejection of Malik Bhago's rich food, dripping with the blood of the exploited, and the embrace of Bailalo's coarse bread suffused in the milk of honest labor was a challenge to establish social norms. And once again, Nanak was not content to merely draw attention to this injustice. He would go on to impart a way of life to his followers in which... Social justice was fundamental and he would create institutions that would give his followers the guidance and the tools that they needed to live this new way of life. Nanak left Sultanpur, a young man after his spiritual awakening, with his faithful companion, Mardana. They were to wander for over 20 years, traveling great distances and visiting many lands, always seeking dialogue and discourse. The sheer distance they covered is breathtaking in hindsight, given how difficult travel was in the Middle Ages. Their travels would rival those of the Moroccan scholar Ibn Battuta, who more than a century earlier had roamed the world for 24 years. We will not even attempt to cover all of Nanak's travels, but instead focus on some of the stories and parables related to them, as they provide rich insights into his worldview and illuminate the ethos of the faith that he was building. However, it is important to comprehend the extent of his wanderings, Nanak's first great journey lasted from 1499 to 1500, and he mostly visited places in the southwestern part of his homeland, the Punjab. It was during this journey that he encountered Bailalo and Malik Bago and declared his commitment to social justice. Sikh accounts tell the story of another memorable encounter during the same journey, which was the genesis of another great institution that Nanak founded. Many travelers to India end up visiting the Golden Temple in Amritsar, one of the most prominent Sikh Gurdwaras or places of worship in the world. A visit to the Sri Harmandar Sahib which is how Sikhs refer to the Golden Temple as, is a truly memorable experience. The Gurdwara shimmers like a jewel, its image reflected in the rippling waters of a halcyon pool that surrounds it. Strains of Gurmath Sangeet, traditional Sikh music of devotion, can be heard as one walks on the cool marble of the promenade that encloses the pool. The British writer Edmund Candler visited the Golden Temple in the early 1900s and recorded his impressions in luminous prose. The temple rises from an artificial lake of green water, in which the placid reflection of its marble walls and gilded roof rests dreamily all day. It is approached by a marble causeway the walls are inlaid with carnelian and mother-of-pearl, and the doors are sheathed in silver. One may stand in the gallery on the second story of the temple and watch the file of worshippers approach along the marble causeway through the darshini darwaza, or gate of adoration. And from the same spot, one may look down upon the Granth sahib within and see the offerings made to the holy book and read the spirit of a creed in the faces of the worshippers. A visit to the Golden Temple is always a special experience, for it is a place of hospitality, calm and reflectiveness. But the experience is replicated in varying degrees at almost every Gurdwara one visits. Gurdwaras all around the world are welcoming and open to all, with their langar or community kitchen serving food to everyone who visits, and truly epitomize Nanak's inclusive worldview and generosity of spirit. The Gurdwara is an institution that looms large in the life of every Sikh, no matter where he lives, and helps him stay moored to his faith, spiritually, socially, and culturally. How the first Gurdwara came into being is a fascinating story, which appears in the accounts of Nanak's first great journey. Nanak and Mardana were travelling in the southwestern Punjab, bordering the now Pakistani province of Multan. They came upon a small town called Tulamba and decided to spend the night there. They had heard about a very pious man named Sheikh Sajjan, who would always throw his home open to all travelers, regardless of caste or creed. They walked to his mansion and, sure enough, were greeted cheerfully. Sajjan had built both a temple and a mosque on his property, so that Hindus and Muslims alike could worship according to their own customs. It seemed like a wonderful rest stop for wayfarers. Sajjan, whose name can roughly be translated to good person or dear friend, personally supervised the arrangements made for the travellers. Things, however, were not as they seemed, for Sajjan was a blackguard. Posterity remembers him as Sajjan the thug. For in the dead of night, his men would seize the sleeping wayfarers and drown them in a well on the property. They would steal all his belongings and money, and the next morning, Sajjan would continue his charade of piety by picking up a pilgrim staff and rosary or spreading out a carpet to pray in the direction of Mecca. The word thug is commonly used in modern times to describe a violent and lawless person. In the Indian context, the word refers to swindler or cheat. In medieval India, the thugs were a secret fraternity of robbers who would strangle and rob their victims, often targeting travellers. Sajjan welcomed Nanak and Mardana into his home with a great show of joy. Nanak was at peace with the world. Anna's face was aglow with spiritual satisfaction. Sajjan was convinced that Nanak was a holy man with many followers who had made him wealthy and eagerly awaited nightfall, anticipating a very profitable night's work. As dusk approached, Sajjan respectfully asked Nanak and Mardana if they wished to retire for the night. Nanak, with a smile, Replied that with his host's permission, he would sing a hymn in praise of the Lord before retiring. When Sajjan nodded, Nanak gestured to Mardana, who started strumming his rabab, and Nanak began to sing. Ujjal keha chilakrana kotam kalari masu, totea utre jesio tova Sajjan se'i naal mein chaldea naal chalan jitthe likha mangiye tithe de disan. Oh, bronze, it shines so brightly until it's roughly scrubbed, and then you see its blackness, which never will wash off. My friends, dear and beloved, With me walk all the way, standing by me forever, even on judgment day. The hymn he sang pierced Sajjan's heart, for Nanak had seen through his shining exterior and had beheld the darkness beneath. Sajjan sat bare and exposed before him, a false friend, The rest of the hymn spoke to the hypocrisy of the so-called pious and the futility of cheating and exploitation. And then came the offer of absolution, of repentance, of the sanctuary of the divine. Sajjan the thug was in tears as he begged Nanak for forgiveness. Nanak replied that in the court of the Almighty, Sajjan would be absolved if he confessed his misdeeds and made reparations. Nanak's tender heart was touched by Sajjan's repentance, and he listened patiently as the thug confessed to all of his crimes. The next day, Sajjan gave away all of his ill-gotten gains to the poor and became a disciple or Sikh of Nanak. Sajjan's mansion became a genuine place of repose for travellers. Before the advent of hotels in the Indian subcontinent, travellers would seek refuge at night at places called taramsals, which would provide safe lodging for free. The word Gurdwara is a relatively modern term for a Sikh place of worship. In Nanak's time, a place of Sikh worship was called a taramsal, a place of rest and repose, where food and shelter would be provided to all for free and the praises of the Almighty would be sung. The Taramsal was the precursor to the modern Gurdwara and the very first Taramsal ever to be established was Sheikh Sajjan's home. It is ironic though that even today, Sheikh Sajjan, who became a beloved Sikh of Guru Nanak, and whose home was the first Sikurdwara ever, is still remembered as Sajjan the Thug. Rising in the western Himalayas, the river Ganga flows for 1,600 miles across the breadth of India, before it enters modern-day Bangladesh and meets the sea. For thousands of years, the Ganga has loomed large in the consciousness of Hindus, who treat the river as sacred. The river is considered the embodiment of the goddess Ganga, and a colorful mythology surrounds its creation. The waters of the Ganga are considered holy by Hindus, who have flocked to the river for centuries to purify themselves by ritual bathing. The city of Hardwar lies on the banks of the Ganga as it emerges from the mountains and enters the plains. It is one of the ancient sites of pilgrimage that dot the banks of the Ganga and attracts thousands of worshippers. It is early morning in Hardwar, and the mighty Ganga flows serenely. A crowd of men stands in the shallower waters close to the banks, immersed in water to their navels, their faces turned towards the rising sun. Reverently, they cup their hands, fill them with water from the river, and chanting prayers, They toss the water towards the east with a flourish. They are performing a ritual known as the Tarpan, offering water to the gods, the holy sages, and their ancestors. It is a solemn occasion. Not only is it their duty, but great benefits are going to accrue. The souls of their ancestors will be sated, The supplicants will be blessed with long life, radiance, superior intellect, wealth, success, and excellent digestion to boot. The solemnity of the occasion is somewhat marred by the antics of a young man whose face is pointed in the opposite direction. He mimics the worshippers and with his hands cupped, scoops up water and with a flourish even grander tosses it towards the west. The worshippers ignore him at first, and then look at him in bemusement. Some of them start to get a little irritated, wondering if he's just a fool or if they're being mocked. The young man is Nanak. A crowd has now gathered around Nanak. Some point at him and laugh. Others glower at him in anger, Finally, an elderly Brahmin addresses him briskly. What do you think you're doing? Are you a Hindu or are you a Muslim? If you're not a Hindu, what are you doing at our place of pilgrimage? If you are a Hindu, why do you cast water to the West instead of to the rising sun? Who taught you to do this? In response... Nanak humbly asks the Brahmin what he and his companions are doing. The Brahmin haughtily replies, We are doing as our scriptures guide us. We are performing a sacred ritual. It will satisfy the spirits of our ancestors and it will bring us great benefit. When Nanak asks where the souls of their ancestors are, the Brahmin sneers and declares that they are thousands of miles away as distant as the sun. Nanak nods, as if in understanding, and continues to throw palmfuls of water to the west. The Brahmin, now very irritated, asks Nanak to explain his odd behavior. Nanak coolly replies, Before I left my home in the Punjab and set out on my journey, I had sown a field. But unfortunately, there is nobody to irrigate it. I am throwing water to it so that it remains green and doesn't dry up. What's worse, my field is on high ground and rainwater won't rest on it. I am left with no choice but to water it in this manner. And with these words, he resolutely returns to his task. Some in the crowd start to laugh. Others look at Nanak with derision or pity. The Brahmin looks at him and sneers. You are a great fool. How can this water possibly reach your fields in the Punjab? With a twinkle in his eyes, Nanak asks, Oh, but it can reach your ancestors? Accounts of Nanak's travel are replete with such stories. The third great social evil he was to fight his entire life was ritualism and superstition, For the people in his time were completely steeped in superstition, which made them easy prey for unscrupulous Brahmins who would extort offerings on every occasion, sad or happy. There were rituals surrounding birth, and there were rituals surrounding death. There were rituals to ward off the evil eye, and there were rituals guaranteed to bring prosperity. There were rituals to ward off every potential calamity. And Nanak set out to debunk them. Ultimately, his real genius lay in the lasting institutions he created to address the social ills he saw so clearly, and the stories of his travels are wonderful tools to understand their genesis. Nanak's second journey was easily his longest. During the years 1501 to 1514, he travelled to the southern and eastern reaches of the Indian subcontinent, brimming with missionary zeal. The holy man and his companion presented a most unusual spectacle. The most ancient of the Janamsakhis or birth chronicles provides a colourful description of Nanak's garb as he set out on his journey. He donned a mango-colored jacket, and over it he threw a white sheet. On his head, he wore the hat of a holy man, and his neck was adorned with a garland of bones. His forehead bore a saffron mark in the manner of the Hindus. On one foot he slipped on a shoe, and on the other he wore the wooden sandal of the wandering mendicant. Perhaps his attire was intended to speak to his eclectic view of the world. Perhaps it was meant to excite speculation and comments about his faith. Perhaps it was indicative of the new faith he was creating, which would be acceptable to both Hindus and Muslims, yet conformant to neither religion. Whatever the purpose, it attracted attention. And everywhere he and Mirdanna went, people would gather curiously around them, many of them children. In every village square, Nanak would bid Mardana to play his instrument and he would sing, enrapturing the crowd around him. And then the dialogue would begin. Nanak and Mardana would crisscross the Indian subcontinent for more than a decade. They visited some of the most important Hindu, Muslim and Buddhist sites of the day, they first travelled eastwards, visiting cities like Mathura, famed as the birthplace of Lord Krishna, beloved deity of the Hindus, and Ayodhya, the birthplace of Lord Ram. They stopped at Allahabad and Banaras, both cities on the banks of the Ganga which drew thousands of Hindu pilgrims. They also visited Bodhgaya, a most holy place for Buddhists, where the Buddha is said to have achieved enlightenment. To this day, Sikh Gurdwaras, or places of worship, dot the towns along the route taken by Nanak, commemorating his visit. For wherever he travelled, he touched the hearts of the people with his kindness and the beauty of his message. The birth chronicles document, instance after instance, where Nanak would meet with haughty Brahmins and Muslim clerics and engage them in dialogue. The hostility shown to him initially would dissolve as he would gently debunk ritualism and superstition. Oftentimes, the arrogant scholars would become his disciples and go on to establish small communities of his followers in far-flung places. It is important to remember that Nanak was on a mission, but he was no missionary. His target was injustice, oppression, ignorance, and superstition. Proselytizing was the last thing on his mind, for he never asked either Hindus or Muslims to give up their faiths. On the contrary, he would exhort Hindus to be good Hindus and Muslims to be true to the ideals of their own faith. Traveling on foot, braving heat and cold, Nanak and Mardana traveled to the easternmost boundaries of the Indian subcontinent, visiting the provinces of Bengal and Assam before turning southward to Urissa, a province on the eastern coast of India.. <laughs> In 1321, a Franciscan friar named Odoric published an account of his visit to India on his way to China. In his book, Friar Odoric recorded his impressions of many wondrous spectacles that he had witnessed. One of his most colourful accounts is of a visit to the city of Puri in Urissa, home to the famed Hindu temple dedicated to the god Jagannath. There is in this kingdom a certain wonderful idol, which all the provinces of India greatly revere. It is entirely of gold and seated on a throne of gold. People come to say their prayers to the idol from great distances, just as Christian folk go on pilgrimage to St. Peter's. By the church, there is a lake, into which pilgrims cast gold, silver, and precious stones in honor of the idol. Annually, on the day when the idol was made, it is put on a fine chariot, and the king and queen and the whole body of people draw it forth from the church with loud singing and all kinds of music. Many maidens go before it two by two, chaunting in a marvelous manner. Many pilgrims who have come to the feast cast themselves under the chariot, saying that they desire to die for their god. And as the car passes over them, it crushes them, cuts them in sunder, and so they perish on the spot. Everyone loves a good yarn and the story of the mayhem caused by the pagan god's chariot captured the English imagination. Of course, pronouncing a name so alien to the English tongue as Jagannath was difficult. Thus, Jagannath became Juggernaut, and a new word was added to the English language. Nanak and Mardana arrived in Puri, and, of course, went to pay their respects at the temple of Jagannath. It was dusk, and devotees had gathered in the temple. Nanak and Mardana tried to enter, but were stopped by a group of haughty Brahmins, perhaps suspicious of their caste origins and Nanak's odd accoutrements. Nanak calmly seated himself on a platform outside the temple, The birth chronicles suggest that the priests were unable to complete their evening rituals and were upbraided by their deity for denying a most holy man entrance. Realizing their error, they rushed to Nanak and apologized profusely and begged him to enter the temple. Nanak, now standing with the rest of the pilgrims, took in the wonderful spectacle. The lamps were lit And Nanak was invited by the high priest to stand up and join the worship, which was grand and imposing. Opulent offerings to Jagannath were made on silver salvers studded with pearls. On the salvers were fragrant flowers and censers from which rose the sweet smell of incense. The beautiful temple was illuminated by the light of flickering lamps. But Nanak seemed unmoved by the beauty. He was in deep reverie. The priests, disappointed at Nanak's aloofness and his seeming rebuff, asked him why he hadn't participated in the worship. And then he spoke. Gagan me thal rav chand deepak bane tar mandal janak moti Hoe Anhata the firmament is thy salver, the sun and moon lamps thine, the pearls that your salver adorn stars that brightly shine, the scent of fragrant verdant trees, no censer smells so sweet. THY FAN THE WIND AND FLOWERS' LAMPS, O NATURE'S GLORIOUS FEET. HOW SHALL I PRAY TO YOU, MY LORD, SALVATION OF THE WORLD? TO THE STRAINS OF unstruck, HALLOWED SOUND YOUR WORSHIP DOES UNFURL. Nanak was not being disrespectful in the very least. HE WAS TOO KIND A MAN TO SCORN DEVOTION. He had, however, been transported. The worship of the idol Jagannath, despite the pomp and pageantry to him, was banal. It was empty. It was small. For in contrast, all of nature and Nanak's mind was in a perpetual state of worship, not to an idol, but to its ineffable lord.
0: The story of the Sikhs is written and narrated by Sarbpreet Singh, author of the poem Kultars Mime, which was adapted for the stage and tells the story of the massacre of the Sikhs in Delhi in 1984. The story of the Sikhs is produced by Almast Media. Our theme music is a rendition of a traditional Sikh hymn by the late Bhai Avtar Singh. Musical contributors to this episode are Bhai Avtar Singh, Bai Gurcharan Singh, and mandolinist Gagandeep Singh. The Story of the Sikhs is sponsored by the Chardi Kala Foundation, a nonprofit that helps young Sikhs in the diaspora understand the values of their faith, serial entrepreneur Dr. Ratinder Pal Singh Ahuja, and the Sani Family Foundation. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are two things you can do to help us reach more listeners. Please subscribe to the podcast and be sure to write a short review. Lucy Suchek is our research assistant. I am co producer and audio engineer Erica Wong. In the next episode, we will visit the far reaches of the eastern Himalayas with Nanak and Mardana. We will join them on the ancient Indo-Egyptian trade route as they journey to the heart of the Islamic world. We will then return with Nanak to his homeland as he gives shape to a new world religion.